Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Before I introduce our truly esteemed guest, this just happens to be our 100th episode, and it also happens to be our final podcast of the year. And with your continued interest and support, we will return in 2023 with great new people and ideas to share with you. While we're gone over the next few months, I do have a big favor to ask. I'm asking if you could please spread the word loud and far about our podcast and my new book. I recently had a conversation with one of the executives at my publishers, and he said, you do realize how far ahead of the culture you were when you first wrote your book 11 years ago, don't you? And then he said, even now with your new edition of Lead from the Heart, I still think you're ahead of the culture. It was an honest assessment, and I suppose many of you listening may be nodding your head in some level of agreement with him. But here's the thing. We no longer want Lead from the Heart to be ahead of the culture. We want it to be an essential part of the culture now. So I really need your help. Please introduce our show to everyone you know. Buy the book as holiday gifts, as leadership book club selections, as a book you'll ask your own boss to read. If you want to see the change I do, please amplify your word of mouth support. The truth is this movement cannot succeed without you helping it grow. And to punctuate the point, I simply can't do it without you. And now on to our 100th episode. I'm honestly truly excited to have Bill George on as our guest. He's the rare person who has been both the CEO of a major company, a Fortune 200 company, I might add, and a Harvard Business School professor. As CEO, he led Medtronic, ironically a company that began by building heart pacemakers, which today has 90,000 employees across 120 countries and which had over $5 billion in net income last year. And for the last 20 years as a senior fellow at Harvard, he's been teaching MBA students and CEOs, a leadership philosophy tied to values, character, and surprisingly, heart. Bill is the author of the leadership classic, True North, which he's recently revised and republished. In his new version, he makes some stunning assertions, starting with his belief that people running large companies today have lost touch with the needs of younger workers and should step aside. In his words, current business leaders must move to the next generation of leaders to their rightful place. Bill also believes all leaders must possess tremendous self-awareness, not to mention a moral compass that guides their actions. He calls out Facebook founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg, for example, as a leader who's done profound harm to society due to a lack of ethics and a spiritual center. And most remarkably, he says businesses long valued intelligent, intellectual workplace managers when what leadership truly needs today is a shift to the heart. We're about to discuss all of this and more. And without further ado, let me give you a very heartfelt welcome to the podcast, Mr. Bill George. Thank you very much, Mark. Well, I've been really looking forward to this. This is the 100th episode of our podcast, and it's also the final episode of the season. And the truth is, I was going to end at 99, and then I saw your book come out, and I had just written this article about Know Thyself. 
And I thought, oh, I've got to have Bill on before we end the season here. So I've extended things a little bit for you. So I'm looking forward Thank to you. the conversation. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Seeing things from the perspective of the silent generation, your generation, and that's a generation that precedes the baby boomers, Gen X, millennials, and Gen Z, not to mention you're being a longtime Harvard Business School professor. I want to start off by asking you, what's your assessment of the current state of workplace leadership? Well, we have a lot of challenges, Mark. I think many ways the baby boomers have left us in a difficult state with their inability to manage crisis and their focus on short-term earnings and share price. Fortunately, now I see this shift going on to look at all stakeholders, customers, employees, communities, as well as investors. But I think the younger leaders coming along, I'm extremely positive about them, the Gen Xers, the Millennials, and Gen Z. And so I'm putting my hope right now on the people I've been working with and mentoring and teaching for the last 20 years to lead differently than their predecessors did. What's going to motivate that? Today's leaders are motivated by making a difference to their employees and leading with their hearts, not just with their heads. And I think that we're seeing that they're going to be rewarded for that. Unfortunately, we've rewarded money, fame, and power in our society. And I think in the future, we're shifting very rapidly to measuring people for their authenticity, their relationships, their caring for people they work with, and their capacity to empower people to get great results on a sustainable basis, not a short-term basis. So just to emphasize the obvious here, this is the Lead from the Heart podcast. So you couldn't be in a better place by saying what you're saying here. But it's interesting. I've got a large following on Twitter, and people send me messages almost daily saying, do you ever feel like the change is never going to happen? Like, have you ever gotten to a point where you're so discouraged that there's been so little progress made that you feel compelled to give up your mission? And there are days when I just want to say, honestly, hell yes. You know, it's very discouraging to see this continuation of what you were talking about with money, fame and power being the driving force between business decisions. So you've sort of stressed that Businesses are committing to honoring all stakeholders and no longer just shareholders. How convinced are you that that's really happening? Oh, it's happening. The question, will it be sustainable if we hit a recession, Mark? It is definitely happening among the CEOs that I'm talking to on a regular basis today. But I can tell you it's much harder being a CEO today than it was 20 years ago when I was CEO the challenges, the expectations that people are now putting on CEOs that used to be considered roles of government, the roles of society, are now being placed on the hopes of CEOs. And so it's very hard to measure up to those. But I think it's going to shake this massive turnover and generational leadership. So when a guy like Bob Chapik at Disney will not defend his own employees, you know you have a problem with mm-hmm. senior people. And I think you need to really move to the new generations that really gets it. I'm teaching a new CEO program with most of the people in their late 40s, early 50s. And I think they're really coming around and understanding this is what matters. You're leading with the heart, not just with your head, that the world does not belong to the smartest person in the room. So tell us why a recession would interrupt the values of becoming more respectful of all stakeholders? Like what changes in a CEO's calculus if we get a recession? 
my fear is that they're going to get back to the same old game of layoffs, getting bonuses for laying people off, and purely focusing on customer cost reduction rather than focusing on continuing to build their enterprise in spite of recession. Recession may be the best time to build your market share and your enterprise, and you have to continue to invest in long-term investments like research and development like improvements in your factories. And if you cut those things out, you're going to be in trouble when you come out of the recession because those take a long time to mature and to develop. So I'm urging CEOs now to hold back on hiring, to trim up their staffs, if you will, get rid of excess costs and focus on what really matters. At Medtronic, I had a policy, no matter how bad the business was, we would never lay off anyone in R&D or any of our frontline sales and service people. Why was that? Well, I felt they were the ones that made the difference. And as soon as you start cutting back there, you're cutting out your future. You're cutting out the people that are dealing with your customers every day. And that was a good way to kill the business. So, and I've seen a lot of companies did that. A lot of retailers have done that. General Motors did that before Mary Barra took over. And you've seen disastrous results. I've always thought of layoffs as being analogous to using a tourniquet. If you have to use them, it's because the life of the organization is being threatened, not because quarterly earnings are being threatened. And how do we learn that that was a good idea to just lop off people? And by the way, I'm sure you've seen the same thing, but there's all sorts of media saying that CEOs, 90% of CEOs anticipate that we're going to have a recession in 2023. A third of them think it's really going to be severe, and the vast majority of them are already talking about layoffs. And I wanted to ask you, why is that our knee-jerk reaction? Why is that the first thing we think to do? Well, it's the fastest way to cut costs, get your earnings per share up. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of people take their cash flow and use it for stock buybacks instead of investing in the business. I think it's wrong. I think my colleague, Hubert Jolie, who turned around Best Buy, said layoffs are the last resort, not the first. And so I believe in good times, holding back on hiring. People didn't love me at Medtronic and middle management because I wouldn't add a lot of staff people, even when the business was growing rapidly, because I always ask the question, can we sustain these people's employment through a recession all the way to their retirement? We should have them for the rest of their lives. And I think that's the kind of perspective that CEOs and leaders need to have today so that they aren't put in that position where, to, like you say, the tourniquet to survive They've got to go through layoffs. There are many other things you can do to make your business more efficient, more effective, and frankly, increase your revenues. You mentioned Hubert Jolie. He's a friend and also has been a guest on the podcast. And how many other Hubert Jolies and Bill Georges of the world are there spreading the message that you're spreading from a you know, an MBA program, not specifically at Harvard, but including Harvard, but all of the top business schools, how many of them are advocating for the shift that you're discussing here? Not enough. I think the business schools are far behind the corporations. The corporate leaders are out there, and particularly the newer ones, are out there in front of where the, the academic institutions are. The idea of leading with their heart is not a pleasant thought for a lot of academics. They want to lead with their head. They want to maintain an intellectual superiority because that's how they get tenure. And that does not encourage them to really be working with their students on leading with the heart. In fact, the most successful thing we've done at Harvard Business School that I was involved in was creating leadership courses in which people got together in six-person groups 
and had very intimate discussions without any faculty members there because they could really talk about what the challenges they faced were without fear of retribution. I will compliment Harvard and tell you that we've had some extraordinary people from your business school on the podcast, Sadal Neely, Laura Huang, and of course, Amy C. Edmonds is one of only two people who's been on twice. And mm-hmm. those are extraordinary people. And people remark to me that these are unusual, uncommon business school professors for all the very reasons that you've just stressed. So I want to pin you down. You've said it several times. What do you mean when you say lead from the heart? Lead from the heart means that you lead with passion for the business. If you don't have passion for the business, you shouldn't be there. It means you have compassion for the customers you're serving. If Medtronic produces a defective heart valve, someone may die. And everyone has to be very aware, or we make mistakes. We go out and apologize for mistakes. Mary Barra, General Motors, who is great at leading with the heart, she's also very tough-minded, had to recall 30 million cars because they weren't right. But she admitted her mistakes, and she had real compassion for the customers they were serving. She said, I don't want this, like the ignition switch, ever to happen again. I don't want us to ever forget it. It also requires empathy for your employees. Let's be honest, Mark, everyone coming out of covid Every organization I know is faced with issues of well-being of their workforce. It's been very stressful. And all of a sudden now, you come out of that and you're faced with a recession staring in the face. You're faced with continuing supply chain shortages, pressures on pricing, inflation running rampant at 9-10%, and can't get the energy you need because of the Russian cutbacks and the price of food is rising. So these are all pressures on businesses, not just people in the food business, but on all businesses. So I think you've got to have empathy for what your employees are going through. But let me say the most important quality that leaders have to have, and honestly, I have some great managers that don't have this quality, and that's courage. You have to make the courage to make the bold decision to move forward when everyone else is pulling back, to continue believing in that acquisition program, to believe in that new product I remember Jeff Bezos was challenged when he told me with Amazon, he was creating the Kindle and it was draining the profits of Amazon. And his CFO came to him and said, how much are we prepared to lose on the Kindle, Jeff? And he said, how much money do we have? In other words, he was prepared to really make a bet and he turned out making a good bet. So I think those four qualities, passion, compassion, empathy, and courage are reflective of people leading with their heart. That doesn't mean you don't make critical decisions. You don't have good analytical skills. You don't have to manage the numbers. Yes, you do all those things. So I think you have to combine the head and the heart, if you will. And that's fundamentally the message of this podcast. They have to go together. And I think that what happens is we hear lead from the heart and we immediately conflate it with well, you're taking all the rigor out of business, which of course we're not. You have to have the ability to be compassionate and empathetic with people and to truly care about them. And you also have to be able to hold them accountable for results and have good business plans. So it's exactly what you said, this supreme balance between heart and mind. But one question I have is, when you say that organizations are ahead of academia, Do they understand what you just said in terms of who they hire for management roles? So we're typically hiring people who are the brainiest people possible. The smartest people are the people we put into business management roles. But you're saying it's got to be a combination of head and heart. You have to have the ability to be empathetic and compassionate, not just with customers, but with your employees as well. And those are traits that not every manager has. 
So I'm wondering, in your observation, in your experience, are you seeing companies shift who they put into managerial roles? Absolutely, they're shifting. They want to put authentic people in there. They're not just looking for the guy or the gal that produces the numbers. And Mark, I think that IQ, the information I have from doesn't really change from ages 10 to 60. You're either great with numbers, you have a rapid vice mind, or you don't. But you don't necessarily need the smartest person in the leadership roles. But emotional intelligence, the kind of qualities we're talking about leading with the heart, are developed qualities. I've had to develop self-awareness, or many times I was not self-aware. And fortunately, I had a support team around me, starting with my wife, that would point that out to me. (laughs) Or I wasn't mindful. And uh, I wasn't as sensitive I needed to be. And I would have a human resource head or a general counsel or vice chair would come into my office and say, Bill, you really uh, intimidate some people or you turn some people off today. I was unaware that I had. But you can learn these qualities. These are learned skills. You're not just, oh, I'm born with self-awareness. No, you develop it over time through sensitivity and relationships. We're not monks. We don't stay in a cave. We learn relationships to active rubbing up against the world and dealing with people. Speaking of rubbing up against people, wasn't a question that I wanted to go down with, but you're somebody I would be remiss if I didn't ask. What are your thoughts about the future of remote working? Mark, I believe in interpersonal contact. I believe in workplace flexibility. If you can be in the office three days a week and work for home two more days, you've got to write a contract as a lawyer, or you've got to run some numbers in the morning, you come to work in the afternoon, that's fine. Or you have a a parent-teacher conference for your daughter or son at school, yeah, you should be able to go to that. But I think you get your job done. My concern is if people are saying, I'm not coming into the office. I know people that said, I joined Cisco Systems. I've never been in the office as if it's a badge of honor. No, where are you going to get mentored? Where are you going to learn the culture of the company? Where are you going to learn how things work? And when it comes around for a promotion, who's going to be considered? I can guarantee you it's not going to be the people who've never been in the office. So maybe individual contributors like computer experts or accountants can sit at home and and do their work. But I think those of us that are interested in innovation, creativity, collaboration, we need to do that in person. Now, admittedly, in a global company, not everyone can be there all the time, and we have to learn those skills. So I see it more of a hybrid context, but I think there are people that say, hey, I'm not coming into the office. Well, that's great for you, except, you know, 60% of the workforce has to be on the job. They're the ones working in hospitals. They're the ones producing products. They're the ones working in engineering labs. They have to be there. They're working in retail stores. So I am less sympathetic to people that say I'm never coming in. That's very clear, by the way. (laughs) You've given that a lot of precise thinking. I just read something, I think it was Gartner that came out and said that people have gotten to a point now where they feel that working remotely is like a given, like they're owed it. And I'm not so sure I understand how we got there, but I think you're absolutely right in the sense that there are just so many things that happen in an office and there are things that can just as easily be done at home and companies that are accommodating people and saying some days with us, some days at home. I think if you think back two years ago, none of us were working from home, right? So now we've had a taste of it. We want to do it all the time or as much as possible. But I think a good compromise is meet in the middle, kind of what you're recommending. Well, i starting a new CEO program at Harvard Business School tonight uh, with large company CEOs. And I'm going to ask the question, how do you know what's going on? 
I learned what was going on by wandering around the offices just saying, hey, Mark, what's going on in your area? Tell me. Or can we have lunch together? Or going to the lunchroom and seeing with production workers. First, it feels intimidating, but I want to learn about quality. I learned more from them about quality than I did from the quality department. Or going in the engineering lab and say, hey, what new ideas are you working on? Boy, I got lots of ideas and creativity. Or spending time in medical centers. Or frankly, if you're in the retail business, you're in the food, you need to get out into retail stores. Or if you're selling companies uh, your food products, you need to be in the stores. That's where you learn what's going on. You don't learn what's going on sitting in your office looking at statistics. That looks good, but you don't really understand what's beneath it. Go out and talk to customers. Get out and talk to your people. And if you don't do that, you're not going to be an effective executive. You may be able to be an individual performer, but you will not be an effective leader of your organization. Thank you. When you talk about the heart, and I'm asking this question specifically because of your connection to Medtronic. So when you say lead from the heart, is that strictly a metaphor for you or do you think there's something more to it? Well, I remember when I was taught by Thich Nhat Hanh 20 years ago, the famous mm. Buddhist monk, he said, the longest journey you'll ever take is the 18 inches from your head to your heart. <laughs> That's the distance. And I think the heart, well, is where love resides. There are these qualities reside. And if you cut yourself off at the neck, you're not going to be really a whole human being. So I believe in developing yourself in mind, body, and spirit, spirit being the purpose for why you're working, the relationships you have. So I like to think of it really as both. Yes, Medtronic's in the business of the beating heart, how we keep them beating and how we deal with heart problems. But I also think of the heart as the place where love resides. Fantastic. So now I want to shift gears here. You spotlight Starbucks and its founder, Howard Schultz, historic focus on building a people-based business over his company's first three decades. But in just the last year or so, hundreds of his stores have launched efforts to unionize. And so my questions are, where do you think Starbucks went wrong in their leadership? And how would you advise the company to restore its former reputation as a great place to work? When Howard founded Starbucks, he created the quintessential people-oriented enterprise. I mean, come on, in those days, we're paying 50 to 60 cents for a cup of coffee, and he's charging 4 to $5. How does he get away with that? He created an environment. He called it the third place. We get together. And I come in every day and get my coffee, and I have a relationship with Mary the barista or Sam the barista, and I build on that relationship. As they've grown, they had more lines. Every time I see a Starbucks store, there are long lines of people. And it's become more of a production shop. And now, with people ordering online, they seem to give priority to people order online to me standing in the store. And so, uh, I think they've lost touch with their own employees. They made the work of a barista instead of a joyful job, a production job. Is how many cups of coffee can you turn out an hour? And I think a lot of the baristas got turned off, and that's why they said, I'm going to look to a union to help me because this is just a sweatshop. It's just drive, 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 and I can never get ahead of the game, and I'm exhausted. And I think management at Starbucks lost touch with their own people. So if you're going to create a quintessential people-oriented organization, you've got to continue doing that. So I teach a case here on Howard, the trade-off between growth and creating a coffee house of joyful people. 
And I think they've leaned too hard on the growth, trying to please the stock market. So you can't please all the people all the time. You may have to take the foot off the gas a little bit in growth to keep your enterprise what it is and not lose sight of that. And I think they have. I hope they'll come back. Howard really wants them to come back. I know Lakshman Narasimhan is going in under Howard and going to be the next CEO. And I think they're going to give it everything they have. And I'm optimistic they'll come back, but they've got to dig themselves out of a hole right now. Well, I mean, I think you pointed out the obvious, which is they deferred to shareholders and investor pressure to keep pay down. And then people were having exactly what you were describing, this intensely production-focused job that took all the joy away from, you know, actually creating something and serving people. And so it's interesting to me that in Howard Schultz's own book that I remember counting this because it impressed me so that he used the word heart 33 different times where his recent behavior doesn't really square with that is in how he's treated the people specifically who have been seeking to unionize. So rather than coming at it with more of a compassionate understanding of maybe the way we've been leading and supporting them has been inadequate that has opened the door to their interest in unionizing because we never had that before in 30 years. So what changed? Rather than looking at the company, I think he was so determined to not have unions come in that he actually sort of fought them and demonized them in some way, which I just thought was unenlightened. And what are your thoughts? Unions are a reflection of management deficiencies. The fact employees want a union. If you have a union, you try to work with them. But I'm talking about organizations that don't have unions traditionally unionizing. It's because management hasn't really built the relationship with its own employees. I think the real problem we have in American business, much more so than I see in other countries, than I see in Japan or in Europe, is that, Mark, and this really bothers me, we have diminished the role of the frontline workers. You go into any store, you go on an airline, you walk into a hotel, you never see the management. What you're seeing are the frontline people and how you feel about that restaurant is determined by how you're treated by the frontline people. You know, if you get poor service, it can be the greatest food in the world. You're not going back to a restaurant, but we have diminished the compensation. I mean, it's almost laughable to think that we still have a $7 and a quarter minimum wage. But why have we diminished them and replaced them with more middle managers and more consultants? And I think we have too many. I'd like to cut the number of middle managers 50, 60 percent. Probably the people on your podcast are going to hate me. And put the upset <laughs> frontline people and pay them well at Medtronic. We paid our engineers and our scientists really well. So they didn't think to get ahead. They had to be vice president of engineering or even director of engineering. I think we've got too much of the latter mentality in American business. And we need to get away from that and pay the people doing the work much better. Now, I realize that's going to contribute to inflation. I get all that. But we've underpaid them for so long that I think we've got to fix that and get back to compensating people who are doing the work first. I can't remember his name, but there was a gentleman who was the CEO of a company called Hardee's and Carl's Jr., hamburger fast food restaurant chain across America. And he became briefly the United States Labor Secretary. But prior to becoming the Labor Secretary, he said that if we ever get to a point where our company is forced to pay people $15 an hour, I will replace them all with robots. And then, of course, he became the Labor Secretary, which is the fox in charge of the hen house. 
but I just remember thinking, wow, that's your idea is to squeeze people as much as you possibly can to create as much profit. Has that ever backfired on CEOs? Is it backfiring now on them where they're becoming more realistic about, you know, needing to pay people vis-a-vis restricting turnover, improving engagement, loyalty, all of it? Yeah, I could be sarcastic. Have you ever had an enjoyable conversation with a robot? Right. That's what you want to turn out. Then, frankly, then Starbucks should just get a production line and make coffee and just have it come off the end of the line and, you know, get yours, pick it up when you come in. And you don't have to see any human beings, you know. And I know that one time they wanted to create stores without any people. You know, why do I go to a certain clothing store? Because somebody's going to treat me well. Look, I'm trained as an engineer, industrial engineer. I believe in robots but not for replacing humans to do that kind of work. Nor am I in favor thinking that artificial intelligence is going to replace humans. It's not going to replace things you're dumb on, Mark, the qualities of the heart. And it's not going to replace intuition and compassion and all these things we've been talking about. So I think we've got to get clear about what we're trying to do. Look, if you want to automate the back office processes, do it. We need fewer back office people. That's okay. But anything that's facing your customers, facing the marketplace, engaged with it, No, that's got to be the human interface that's going to make the difference. And I'll guarantee you, I'll put my team of great, caring human beings up against your team of robots, and we'll beat you every day, even if you cost less. Amen. I've seen it repeatedly in my experience. It's irrefutable, but it's lost on so many people. It's just almost inconceivable to some people to believe what you said. And, you know, while you're talking about what we're talking about, unions and so forth, I should ask you, what caused the great resignation in your mind? We have 77 million Americans alone have quit their jobs in the last 21 months since January of 2021. There is a post-COVID psychology that we're just starting to understand that's had incredible impact. Sitting at home for two years, more or less, people have had a chance to rethink their lives and say, what do I want out of my life? I don't want to just do drudgery. I just want to wash dishes all my life. I don't want to do just these same routine things. I want to find joy in life. And if I uh, have to cut back on my work hours or I have to give up my job and my wife carries the ball, okay. And so I think people are rethinking their lives and their careers. I've heard baby boomer CEOs have told me, you know, that's because these millennials, they just want to change jobs all the time, don't want to work. I said, no, no. Here's why they're leaving your organization. You haven't given them a clear sense of purpose that they're making a difference. If you give them a clear sense of purpose, that's what we try to do at Medtronic. We're there to restore people to full life and health. That's what we do. If that doesn't turn you on, yeah, go ahead and quit. But if it turns you on, you'll have a great career. But it didn't just there. I was with a banker last night who uh, he's raised his minimum wage to $20. And he said, we may have to go higher. These are tellers. These are first line employees. He's got he's got a huge, huge consumer banking of 27,000 employees. And he shows great caring for his people. And so to his everlasting credit, you know, he has his people call up customers, say, how are you doing? Can I help you? Now, not many bankers do that. So I think that kind of attitude is what we need to have throughout enterprise. And that's why I can't do it single-handedly. You and I can work together, but try to inspire people to lead differently than they have been. And then you won't have the greater example. People will see real purpose in their work. 
that uh, had a, a colleague who said, who ran Kroger, he said, you know, serving in the grocery business is a dignified, proud profession. And if I can make your day better with touches of kindness, you're going to feel better about yourself and you're going to feel better about coming to Kroger. And at the end of the day, I'll feel better about myself because I've been kind and helped a lot of people show them how to navigate a grocery store. Now, that may sound mundane to you, Mark, but I'm telling you, that's where the action is. That's what leaders have to do. But if they're sitting in their offices looking at stats, they're not going to realize that last, I call it the last three feet between the employee and the customer, between you and your doctor. That makes all the difference. That surely doesn't sound mundane to me. It sounds inspiring to me. In fact, I'm sitting here just circling the word dignity. That's what we've taken out of work. That's what people are thirsting for. They're so hungry for it. Show me that I matter. Show me that you care about me. Show me that what I do here has some meaning and significance. And we've lost that. And particularly, I've been in grocery stores where you just see people that work there are just numb. It's just robotic, sadly, and they're not really connected to the mission of the organization. So, no, I'm, I think that's brilliant what he's telling his managers and employees. I started on the board of Mayo Clinic for seven years, and we had the Discovery Channel come in, and they wanted to go and visit some of the uh, patients' rooms. And they went to uh, one patient's room that was empty, and there was a woman in cleaning the room. And they asked her, what is your job? She looked him right in the face, and she said, my job is saving lives. And he said, no, no, I don't. I know what Mayo does. No, tell me your job. She said, my job is saving lives. Do you realize that the number one risk of coming into a hospital is picking up infection from other people that's left in this room? And this room is not perfectly clean. When a new patient comes in, somebody could pick up that infection and somebody could die. And a quarter of a million people die because of that. So my job is saving lives. Now, think of that. She's probably on the lowest end of the totem pole in terms of the pay in the enterprise. But she gets it, you know? Can everyone feel that way? Everyone feels like, hey, I've got a role here that makes a difference. You say she gets it, but it's the management that gets it, that imbued that in her, right? That, yeah, that gave right. her that understanding. It's beautiful. I'm getting long in the tooth, Bill, and I'm just thrilled to hear what you're saying today because I'm just wondering, are we ever really going to make the shift that we need, not just to give people back their dignity and to pay people fairly, but just for the whole well-being of society so that work doesn't have to suck, that work doesn't have to be something people dread, that they're getting their needs met and helping the organization succeed. And somehow it seems from a management perspective that we think one undermines the other. If we want people to perform and drive the greatest amount of profitability, then we need to pay them as little as possible and we need to squeeze as little as possible and treat them as replaceable and, and really just act as if you don't matter. What matters is the organization and we're going to do what we need to do to make the organization succeed. And I just think that all needs to be blown up. And from uh, outside looking in, I mean, you just have much closer optics to this. And so you're telling everybody that's listening that change is coming. <laughs> I'm sure people all around the world are going, hallelujah. I hope so, because it better happen. Look, so many of the baby women raised in the era of shareholder value is all that matters. Short-term shareholder value, quarterly earnings. And, you know, our executives can manipulate some numbers and make the quarterly earnings to meet shareholder expectations. And everyone at the very top gets a big bonus. Meanwhile, we cut the compensation in real terms of the people doing the work. This is wrong. We got to flip the whole thing upside down. And uh, we got to stop paying people for behaving like that. 
that's just wrong. And so I'm dedicated to see this happen. Well, I am too. (laughs) But, you know, I have to call out that MBA programs, specifically the top ones, for years have taught MBA students how to manipulate an income statement and a balance sheet and not really how to manage other human beings. So given the fact that you've been there for 20 years and as you sort of see those years pass and now you're seeing the future of what students are specifically going to be taught, what revolution have you seen in business schools in terms of how future CEOs are coming out of schools like yours? I haven't seen it. I'll say this. I came to Harvard because Dean Kim Clark asked me to join a team of people treating leadership and corporate accountability, what I might call a post-Enron ethics course. And uh, we didn't have any leadership courses. And that one's gone extremely well. It's a required course. And I tacked onto it an optional course. It became one of the two most requested courses at the school, along with Clay Christensen's course. And it was all about the human side leadership. Authentic leadership is what it was called. It still is. I'm not teaching it now. We've got people teaching are better teachers than I am, but it's extremely popular. And a couple other colleagues on the original teaching team are teaching a course called The Moral Leader. And uh, Hubert is now here and he's teaching another course, Putting Purpose to Work. This is all the human side, which is far as, by the way, Mark, none of this is new. I mean, no, no, of course not. Felix Roethlisberger and Abe Maslow, you know. Sure. It's not like we've invented something new. I, I would, would say, oh boy, Mark, I created, no, I didn't create any of this. You just got to go back and realize human psychology that we forgot about. And we tried to substitute numbers for humanity, just like today they're, on Silicon Valley, it would substitute artificial intelligence for judgment, intuition, love, and caring. I want to transition into something a little bit more personal about you. In your mid-20s, your mother died suddenly of a heart attack. And as you write in your book, you had been very close to her, so that was a profound loss. And then the following year, your fiancé had a malignant brain tumor and suddenly died. So you had some rather significant losses back to back. And you call them in your first book and in your updated version, crucible moments. And so in my language, painful setbacks in life that either end up defining you or refining you. And so tell us about the crucibles and how your losses influenced your future approach to leadership. How did these make you pivot? I can tell you this is the time when the two women I was closest to in my life disappeared suddenly without having a chance to say goodbye. I had a great blessing that I met my wife, Penny, the following year, and we've been together for 53 years. So that's she's the greatest blessing in my life. But let me say that crucial moment, Mark, it doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter what your title is. doesn't matter what your job is. You get everything stripped away and you're standing and say, what matters in my life? And it has to do with relationships, with caring. And so that was the lowest point in my life. Thanks for me. Penny came along and helped pull me out of it. It took a while. You know, it didn't happen overnight. It took months. And I had close friends, and, you know, roommates and all that really helped me through that period. If I hadn't had that, I'm not quite sure where I would have been. But that's what you need. You need to know who matters in a difficult time. I've seen people get fired from their jobs. Talking to someone the other day, a CEO got fired and he said he wanted a tailspin. He couldn't get out of bed for three weeks. He was so depressed. He felt like he'd let everyone down. I think that crucible moment really 
has you stop thinking about what you are and start thinking about who you are and what matters in life. Why are we here? We've only got a short time to live. How can I make a difference? Now, I've been blessed with good health. I'm still going strong. I haven't retired and moved to Florida. <laughs> and you're living in Minnesota in the winter. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Although we do travel occasionally. But in all seriousness, I'm still going because the good Lord has given me years. And I'm going to try to use all those years to influence people. My whole job, I had someone say to me the other day, you know, Bill, I finally got you figured out. You take vicarious pleasure in the accomplishments of others. And I said, yeah, you're right. I do. I don't lead anything now, Mark. I'm only, I need some programs, so that's not really leading anything. My job is to help people become better leaders and to reach their full potential. And if I can do that, wow, I think I will accomplish something. I don't take any credit for it. They have to do it on their own. But if I can help get a little read to like, get, help them get on the right course, or they're facing a crucible, I have a tendency to call up CEOs and others who lose their jobs and say, how can I help? Can I be there for you? Not everyone wants it, by yeah, the way. sure not. But a number yes. of them do, and because they'll come back. And they bounce back and have great lives and do great things. And so maybe they learn from that crucible moment. If you don't learn from them, then you're going to go off. You have another and another and another. Universal two by four. You just used interesting language because you said you get vicarious pleasure in the success of others. And I actually think that that defines who we should be putting into leadership roles. People who thrive in the success and happiness and well-being of other people. So it's not all about themselves. And I know I've asked you this question a little bit earlier on, but do you think that enough organizations are seeing that in terms of who they're putting into leadership roles, particularly now as the boomers are retiring and either Gen X or millennials are moving into the C-suite, is it a different breed of people that we're putting into these roles? Absolutely. We've had 400 people come through these programs, and I see the changes that are taking place. Yes, and most of them are coming up internally where people really know them, and I see the degree of caring. And by the way, people call this the soft side of leadership. That's nonsense. This is much harder, much harder than it is getting the numbers right. I could go into any organization, half a dozen people, and get the numbers right. That's easy. This is hard, really hard to build a culture of caring and empowerment and accountability and really having an alignment around a core central purpose and a set of values. And if you don't have that, you're going to be floundering. That's why I've been hard on Mark Zuckerberg at Meta or Facebook or whatever he calls it, because he once said, it's okay to be unethical as long as it's not illegal. I mean, Mark, what kind of nonsense is that? And can anyone really see that line? There's a lot of gray areas in business, trust me. And people want to know who they can trust. I can tell you the millennials today are not going to work for someone they can't trust. Mark, if they can't trust you, they're not going to work for you. And how do you build that trust? You build it by being honest and truthful with them, being true to your word, and being real, being authentic. And saying, yeah, ooh, this was terrible. Bad things happen to good people. I'm sorry. You mentioned Mark Zuckerberg, and you are explicit in your book. And it honestly surprised me when I read it that you were so open and honest about it. I mean, you basically laid out that there's a series of deception and unethical behaviors that go back to the college days. Like he didn't even create Facebook. He basically ripped it off is the story. And then he's really kind of continued this behavior in your opinion. And so I have to ask you, why do we tolerate this? Why do shareholders tolerate it? Why don't they want something better? 
But why as a society don't we want something better? Why don't we want to look at the CEOs and by the way, government leaders for that matter too, anybody who's in a meaningful leadership role and say, we have to have character. We have to have ethics. We have to have values. All the things that you are all about. I don't necessarily see that we really employ those when it comes to picking people in senior government and business leadership roles. I won't comment on the uh, on the elected politicians, but let me comment that <laughs> our media gives tremendous credence to wealthy people, to billionaires. Are they better than other people? How did Rajat Gupta get himself in trouble? He was, mm-hmm. he was a great leader. They wanted to go from $120 million of net worth, Mark, to a billion. And he got in some illegal activities and wound up in jail. I feel deeply sorry for him. I feel sorry for Zuckerberg because he never had a chance to mature before he threw in the business. He's been there 19 years, by the way. That's a long time as CEO. I put a 10-year limit on mine being CEO. 19 years is way too long, and you do get burned out. But I think as a society, we look up to wealthy people, powerful people. Hey, they're brilliant. Jeff Bezos is brilliant. Elon Musk is brilliant. But does that make their better people than the rest of us? I don't think so. And I think we got to stop doing that and idolizing people like that for how much money they're worth or looking at the Forbes 400 or whatever in the heck it is. And really looking at people for who they are, the human qualities. That's the kind of people I want to be around. I don't need to be around people that are worth a lot of money or, uh, you know, have big titles. I'd much rather be around people that really care. And I know they'll be there for me when I have a tough time. And I'm there for them when they have a tough time. Imagine if Fortune magazine had the 100 most humane CEO list. That would be really That's a good idea. Right? Let's talk to Alan Murray about that. He was on the podcast, too. And I kind of tossed out something similar. But I'm sure you have a closer relationship to him. So he could move this narrative a lot further if you would uh, persuade him to do that. (laughs) It's all about leadership. If you look at the failures in any enterprise over the last 20 years, it's all about failed leadership. Why has Facebook lost 60% of their values? I mean, okay, Amazon and Apple and Microsoft are down, but nothing like that, 20, 50%. Just because stop. I mean, look at a guy like Sacha Nadella. What a fantastic leader. Tim Cook, look what they've done. And Cook was willing to take him on. And he said, you know, he thinks privacy is a human right. Does someone have the right to use your personal health care data and sell it to someone else without your permission? I don't think so. And the Europeans have been very clear about that. But uh, unfortunately, in the U.S., we have not. You're a big advocate for acknowledging one's leadership imperfections. Know thyself is the broad term, but it's specific to what's holding me back, my potential derailers, if you will. And this is sort of a big picture summary of what your book is about. Tell us how to get to a place where we're willing to be exposed like this and how you recommend that we leaders actually identify our personal and leadership limitations before they become trouble for us. If you're blessed to be in a leadership role, the first thing you have to do with people you work with is admit your mistakes. Because if you won't admit them, no one else will. I saw this in Vietnam where everyone was covering up mistakes when I worked in the Defense Department in the late 60s. And if you admit your mistakes and you're vulnerable or you're willing to say, hey, I don't know, let's go find somebody in the organization that has the answer to that. That vulnerability is power. As my friend John Hope Bryant says, that's power. And so I think you have to be willing to be vulnerable. You can't be invulnerable. No one is. And then you become more humane because then other people say, well, I can make mistakes too here and I won't get fired. I used to tell people openly, Mark, at Medtronic, you'll never get fired for making a mistake here. But you will get fired for covering one up. 
because we're not clairvoyant. We need to know what's going on because human life is at risk. And I led that way for 12 years there. So I think it really starts right there. And I think that's what we need to think about is just be open and be honest with people and uh, say, I'm sorry I offended you. Look, I, I'm an impatient person. I move too fast. Sometimes I intimidate people. I don't want to. Sometimes I'm too challenging. I go too far. And so I've had to pull back on those characteristics. But yeah, I admit when I made a mistake, I'm sorry, Mark, if I was that way. Why is it so hard for so many managers? We see engagement scores haven't improved in at least 15 years. And now it's becoming sexier because we're calling it quiet quitting. But it implies that that people don't want to really give any more to their jobs than they have to, at least a large percentage of people. And that could be turned around if you had somebody who was more inspiring, more humane, more caring, leading you. Noting the fact that you're saying, hey, a big change is coming and you possess that optimism. Why has it taken so long and why has it been so hard for people to accept that even leading from the heart is not soft, it's not weak, it's not sentimental, and it actually drives greater financial performance at the end of the day? You look at boards of directors, most people in their 60s and 70s, and uh, they measure people by earnings per share and the stock price. And instead, we should be measuring them by customer satisfaction, market share gains. We should be measuring by the employee survey that we get back. What is their engagement score? And then we look within our own companies and who are the employee, who are the executives, who are the leaders that have the highest engagement scores that make the biggest difference. And we measure them for the long term, not over some short-term actions you take, but really measuring them over the long term. That's why I'm a big advocate promoting from within, because when somebody comes to them from the outside, you don't really know that person. Somebody that's been there 20, 25, 30 years, you know them pretty well, and you know their flaws, and they can work to correct it. But I think we're measuring people the wrong way and rewarding for the wrong things. I mean, Carly Fiorino, she's at HP. She made $10 million or some large amount of bonus one year because she laid off so many people. I mean, it's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. Hey, I'm not taking a salary this year because I had to lay off all these people. You were the CEO of Medtronic. We talked about this briefly, which for my audience is a medical device company that got its start manufacturing heart pacemakers, which I love. And I looked it up. It earned $5 billion last year, has 90,000 workers worldwide. So what's one or two of the greatest leadership lessons you learned there that you now make a point of teaching HBS students, including all those CEOs that you're about to teach? We measured ourselves. Actually, I didn't create this idea, but I adopted it for the whole enterprise. Part of our business did is, I think it was the pacemaker business. How many seconds does it take until another person is restored by a Medtronic product? When I got there, it was 100 seconds. Then it got down by the time I left, it was seven. Today, thanks to Omar Ishrak and Jeff Martha, it's down to two per second, two per second. So that's how many people we're helping. That's our mission. And by the way, if we do that well, we'll get the revenues and we'll get the earnings. They will grow and ultimately the stock price will respond. But if we do that well, but that's something that every production worker can relate to. That's something that every engineer can relate to. That's something that every sales or service, technical sales or service rep can relate to in the company. The accountants can relate to. Everyone gets it. So we had the wrong metrics. If you get the metrics right. So we did that. The other thing we did is invested very heavily in innovation, even in very difficult times when we're struggling to make the numbers. We kept the innovation money coming and we were doing not just another pacemaker, another stent, another defibrillator, another heart valve. No, we were focusing on 
unmet medical needs, of treating Parkinson's disease, cerebral palsy, all kinds of neurological disease, spine disease, because there's a lot of serious spine problems out there. Diabetes, type 2 diabetes is growing rampant. Now I'm in trimos just type 1. But trying to figure out what are those disease states where we can help. Medtronic hadn't figured out how it can help people in cancer except a little bit, but sure have in a lot of other fields. So that's the name of the game for me, is figuring out where you have an unmet need on the part of your customers and where you have skills inside your organization to bring it forward. We didn't get into biopharma because we don't have any skills there. But if you can marry those two things, that's what turns people on. That's what excites your people. And then you can create an enterprise that's really dynamic and rapidly growing. So only because I need to hear it. <laughs> Tell me again, CEOs are listening to you. <laughs> well, I get a lot of calls from them. I talk to a lot of them. I think so. We have good relationships, very good relationships. We may not get the ones that are only interested in themselves because they may have no interest in yours truly. But yeah, I'm very excited about this generation of CEOs. And that's why you see a lot of them written up in my book. Those are direct quotes in my book, uh, the Emerging Leader Edition of True North. They had to be approved in writing by those CEOs. Uh, they wouldn't have appeared. So every word that's in there is approved by them. So uh, that's trust. <laughs> they wouldn't have wanted to have that quote in there <laughs> unless they believed it. Well, I'm just happy as all get out to hear you say that. Bill, we're going to take a brief departure from our conversation and move into what we call the heartbeat round. It's a podcast tradition of ours. And I'm going to ask you several more personal questions and ask you to answer them more instinctively, quickly. In other words, in a heartbeat. Are you willing to give it a go? Yes. All right, cool. A piece of advice you'd give your younger self. Don't be so eager to get ahead. Take your time and learn first. The trait you admire most in other people. Courage. The Latin root of the word courage comes from cur, which means heart. You got it. One subject you think all leaders would be wise to bone up on. Uh, Self-awareness. Prediction about the future you're pretty certain will come true. Uh, democracy will prevail. Yay. The CEO above all others who deserves our greatest admiration currently. Sachin Nadella, Microsoft. Your synonym for the word heart. Uh, love. One thing people would be surprised to learn about you. I coach soccer for 12 years as executive vice president Honeywell and CEO of Medtronic. What level? Like high school or college or kids? Kids from ages 7 to 19. Fantastic. I grew up with them. The quality that derails the most leadership careers. Uh Lack of self-awareness. Cultural value every organization should have. Caring. Skill improvement you're working on right now. Uh, uh, being more patient. An author of any genre who's had the most influence on your life. Warren Bennis. Something you'd really like to see changed in the world. Focus on love instead of wealth. Wow. A person alive or not that you'd most like to have dinner with. Uh, the Dalai Lama. And the quality you consider most essential to your success? Building relationships with people, authentic relationships. These are wonderful. Thank you so very much for going through them. And by the way, you're one of the rare guests who was able to go through them in a heartbeat. So thank you for that, too. I just follow instructions. Thank you. <laughs> Before I let you go, I I want to ask you, is there anything that's 
really important, and this doesn't necessarily have to be from your book, but it certainly could be, that I neglected to bring up? Or is there an idea from any of your work that you want all of us listening to never forget? Yes. Put the frontline people on top of the organization, flip it upside down, and put all of us in a supporting role that our job more is to coach people to reach their full potential. I'm a soccer nut. So think of the great soccer teams of the world. What does a great soccer coach do? He coaches people to reach their full potential. That's our job as leaders. We don't actually do the work. You know, I couldn't design a defibrillator or a base member of my life depended on. So other people are doing the work, but we need to empower them and coach them how to reach their full potential. About six or seven years ago, I can't remember, I wrote an article and using state-of-the-art data from Jim Harder at Gallup, and we were talking about this idea of coaching that you just mentioned. And I said to him in our conversation that later went into the article, why don't we just change the orientation of manager to coach? Like, why wouldn't we just call them coach so that they have this automatic orientation for advocating for the growth and success of other people, that they see their role as developers, nurturers, supporters. And some people have pushed back and said, well, you know, managers do much more than coach. And I said, well, actually, that's not true. So if you look at coaches like in a major league soccer team or a major league baseball team or even in collegiate sports, they're all making the decisions about who's on the team and they're making budget decisions. And so all the kinds of things that a traditional manager would be doing. What's your thoughts on that? Simply, I'm asking because you brought up the idea of coaching, coaching, coaching. Well, in my book, we create a whole acronym, which means coaching starts with caring about your people. Coaches today, unlike the past, they don't make it unless they care for their people. And we've been talking about how you get them organized into their greatest strengths, which we call the sweet spot, where they're highly motivated, and get them aligned. But I do think coaches challenge. This is not soft. And uh, every good coach challenges people, say, Mark, you know, you got a lot of ability, but you're not reaching your greatest capability. Let me give you some tips. And then last thing, I'm going to help you do better. And I'm going to give you some ideas. But when it comes to playing the game, I'm on the sidelines. You're in the game. And so mm-hmm. you've got to step up and do all these things yourself. So that's my job. That's my job as a leader. I actually don't play the game. Very good. We'll leave it there. This is sort of the punctuation of our 100th episode and the entire series so far. So On behalf of my audience, Bill, this was just a delight and very encouraging conversation. You're a very smart man, but you also have a very big heart. And I think that's the combination we're all looking for in leaders. So thank you so very, very much. Thank you. It's been a thrill to be on with you. And I love your work in leading with the heart, Mark. So don't back off. Don't give up. I'm taking that to heart. I'll leave it there. Thank you so very much. That was lovely. Before we sign off, I want to say thank you to all of you, our listeners, including several of you who I know have managed to listen in on all 99 plus this one, 100 episodes we've produced so far. Our show ranks in the top 2% of all podcasts worldwide, and it's because of your interest that's made that happen. If you haven't already done so, please connect with me on social media. You can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. And if you'd like information on having me speak in an event, please reach out to me via my website, markccrowley.com. 
And as we end our 2022 season, I want to thank all the people who've helped create this podcast, including my producer and sound engineer who does so much of the work, Eric Oz, along with Ken Boynton, Carrie Finnessy, and Susan DeRoche. And until the next time, I close things out with my two constant reminders. When you leap from the heart, your people will follow and love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now. Mm-hmm.